Well, this morning I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that shows us a true picture of God. Actually, we're going to look at two pictures of God. And one picture says, this is God. And the other picture is, this is not God. This is what, this is what God is like, not that. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the New Testament uh, book of Mark, Mark's Gospel. And we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 13, uh, through actually chapter 3, verse 6. You'll find that on page 708 of your church Bibles, the navy blue Bibles in the pouch in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, please take one as our gift today. And these verses uh, are really several short scenes, several short one-act plays in the life of Jesus uh, where he butts heads with some religious leaders called the Pharisees. And, and these verses really deal with conflict that he had with the Pharisees. Um, some Bible teachers call these conflict scenarios or controversy scenarios or controversy narratives. But it really, it's, it's not about, you know, where Jesus butts heads with them about their picture of God, which is really just a picture of petty religious rules. But the truth of the matter is, this is really not about petty religious rules. It's really about the question, who rules? Who rules? Which picture of God rules in my life? Is it a picture of freedom or is it a picture of bondage? And which which picture do you want hanging on your wall? Well, we should look at these contrasting pictures and then make up our minds here. Verse 13 begins, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. That's the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So here's scenario number two. Some people came and asked Jesus, well, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. That's scenario number two. Scenario number three. 
One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, This Jesus. Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time he went to the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. And he looked around them at, at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is God's word. Did you see the two pictures? One a picture of grace, the other a picture of shame. One is a picture of bondage, the one is a picture of freedom. And so let's just journey through these episodes and see which picture needs to hang on the wall of our hearts and in our lives. Jesus confronting the Pharisees about this picture, who is God? Now let's just back up for a minute. You know, You walk into a place like this and you hear a word Pharisee and everybody kind of goes boo, hiss. Who are we booing and hissing? Who are the Pharisees, by the way? We know they're kind of the bad guys of the Bible, but I mean, who were they? Well, Well, the name Pharisee literally means separate ones. And actually, they were a back-to-the-Bible movement that emerged almost 200 years before Jesus Christ was born. You see, Israel's history, when Israel was sent into exile to Babylon for worshiping false gods and forsaking the word of God, Israel's biggest fear is that they would lose their identity as a nation, that they would just dissolve into the greater Babylonian culture, that they would just become Babylonians and, and, and Israel as a nation would just exist no more. That's what happened to the ten northern tribes when they went off to Assyria. You never hear of the ten northern tribes. They just dissolved into history. Well, the southern tribes, uh, th- th- they just did not want that to happen. They feared their loss of identity as a nation. So when they returned from exile and when other nations began to exercise occupation over their country, 
God's people said, you know, never again. We are going to learn the word and we are not going to worship idols. And so a group of reformers gathered and they called themselves the separate ones. And they began to lead the way in terms of following God's word and worshiping God only and putting away their idols. And that was wonderful. The Pharisees led this, this, uh, uh, this revival, this spiritual revival among God's people. But then something began to happen. Something began to happen. And it didn't happen overnight. But gradually, the Pharisees' concern for following God's word and mentoring God's people and to serve as an example to God's people, they began to turn on God's people. Instead of leading with a servant's heart and with humble lives, they began to function as taskmasters. They grew proud of themselves. You know, they began to act, well, this is how you need to do it if you're going to be a real believer. And so you throw in special dress to identify yourself, and you begin to separate yourself from someone who's not like you, and, and you, you develop an elitist attitude toward erring brothers or erring sisters. And, and then you label such spiritually lesser people sinners. Did you notice in the church Bible, when you see the word sinners here, it's in quotation marks, you see? That's a label that the Pharisees gave to people who, who, were, who were less spiritually inclined as them. And so the Pharisees morphed into this, this rigid, calcified fraternity of influential rule keepers. And, and in, by Jesus' day, they had become more interested in procedural correctness than a heart passionate for God, passionate for God's people, and passionate for God's word. In fact, here is a poem that described some of the Pharisees. It goes like this. We are God's chosen few. All others will be damned. There's room enough in hell for you. We can't have heaven crammed. Well, that was their attitude. So you can imagine the you know, how aghast the Pharisees were at verses 13 through 17 when Jesus calls Levi, and we think that's another name for Matthew because there's a parallel account in Matthew 9, 9 to 13. Matthew 9, 9 to 13. You can look that up. Jesus calls Levi, who is a toll collector, a tax collector for Herod Antipas. Levi collected taxes on goods being shipped back and forth along the trade route there in northern, um, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And it was a dirty business. It was very corrupt. Uh, the Roman Empire would say to a province like Israel, look, we need this amount of money from you, and now whatever you can collect beyond that is yours to keep, and you get the authority, the authority to impose it. And that's, just, and that's just a recipe for uh, um, corruption. And so Levi, this Hebrew, was considered a traitor, an unpatriotic mercenary to an occupying superpower, and he was hated by the people. Hated. And yet what Jesus calls him. He's sitting there. He's at work. And Jesus says, follow me. And he gets up. And he leaves 
his life and he follows Christ. And, and, and not only that, Jesus goes over to his house for supper, for dinner. Not only with Levi, but with his friends. Now, now, you cannot underestimate the power of dining with someone as a symbol of acceptance and friendship. I mean, to have table fellowship with someone is a gesture of peace and acceptance and love. And this just blew the Pharisees' circuits. I mean, to them, Jesus was eating the wrong food with the wrong people at the wrong place. And so they gossiped. They gossiped there. They said, well, why, 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 does, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know? Why does he, why does he do this? They're gossiping. And you know, Jesus got wind of this. And he just replied. He said, well, this is, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's, But the sick, I've not come to call the righteous, I've come to call the sinners. And you have to understand, when Christ said that, he wasn't suggesting that the Pharisees were healthy. And he certainly wasn't suggesting that they were righteous. He's being ironic. (laughs) Jesus is showing us a picture of God. The God who frees us from religious elitism by loving people no matter who they are. Think about this. Think about this. God would love to have dinner with you. Some of you need to hear this. God enjoys you. He enjoys you. You, Some of you need to hear this. A writer named Thomas Long once stayed in a motel in a large city. And when he got into the motel, he saw a sign in the elevator that said, Party tonight... Room 210, 8 p.m., everyone invited. And Thomas Long remembers thinking, well, I wonder who might be there. Who might come to that party, you know? I mean, what, the tired sales executives, uh, bored vacationers, weary travelers, people searching for something other than just a dull evening in a motel away from home. But Thomas Long later discovered that the sign was a hoax. It was just a cheap, practical joke. And, and, and then, he, listen to what he wrote. He wrote, For a brief moment, those of us staying at that motel were tantalized by the possibility that there just might be a party going on somewhere to which we were all invited. A party where, where it didn't make much difference who we were when we walked in the door or what even motivated us to come a party we might come to out of boredom or loneliness or curiosity or simply out of a desire to come and see what was happening a party where it didn't matter nearly as much what got us in the door as what would happen to us after we arrived And the gospel is that Jesus is willing to throw such a party and you're invited and it's not a hoax, is it, Roger? It's not a hoax. Now that picture of God, I need to have hanging on my wall. The wall of my heart. What about yours? Well, that's why Jesus came. Well, later on in verses 18 to 22, um, 
Some people confronted Jesus and they, they were curious about why Christ and his disciples were not fasting like John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees. This is interesting. John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees are connected not because they agreed with one another but because both groups practiced fasting. And incidentally, in the Hebrew Bible, the only time that God's people were required to fast was once a year on the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees added to that. They fasted Mondays and Thursdays as a sign of their commitment. It was kind of a badge of honor, you know? And, and it, was almost, it almost became a game. Uh, you know, whoever can look the most gaunt wins. And so Jesus was criticized. You know, Jesus, if you want to be taken seriously, you need to fast. Well, who made that rule up? Well, the Pharisees did. And Jesus pushes back on that, you see? He says, I'm not going to fast. Now, is fasting okay? Of course it is. Jesus knows how to fast. He fasted in Mark chapter 1, 40 days in the, in the desert. He knows how to fast. That's not the issue. The issue is, it's not the time to fast. And why? Because he says, the bridegroom has come. Verse 19, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? You ever run out of food at a wedding reception? It's really awkward, isn't it? It's a time for joy and celebration. Pass the cake and give me that piece, give me that piece with, the, with the really thick, juicy rose icing. I want that. And what you need to understand is that when Christ calls himself the bridegroom, that's a veiled reference to his deity. Isaiah 62.5 says, Isaiah 62.5, As the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. You see why I say God enjoys you? But you see what's going on here? The Pharisees have created a set of religious policies based on the Hebrew Bible, but then they treat their policies as if it were the Bible. And that's legalism. Legalism is when the application of a biblical principle is given all the force of the principle itself. Now, I don't know that we have that much problem with fasting and making that, you know, the sign of spiritual maturity here at Windsor Road, but I read a great book this past week by one of my old teachers in seminary. Larry Osborne wrote a book called The Accidental Pharisee, and he talks about how easy it is to become become just how easy it is to drift if we're not careful into a pharisaic and legalistic and self-righteous spirit about our faith. And Larry Osborne says that we become accidental Pharisees when we give the application of a principle all the force of the principle itself. For instance, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray continually. Pray continually. That's in the Bible. That's a biblical principle. I mean, amen. Okay, what's the application of that? What's the application of that? Well, let's say that, uh, that the application of that involves a daily quiet time with God. Right? 
A, a, a DQT, a daily quiet time with God. A daily quiet time, great way to start my day. Prayer, Bible reading, time with the Lord. I'm, I, I'm in on that. Jesus got up very early in the morning while it was still dark, and he prayed, right? We see that in Mark's gospel. I'm there. But if you bought into the Pharisees' picture of God, you would find yourself either racked with guilt or swollen with pride. You see, the accidental Pharisee would worry all day, am I keeping this command? Am I keeping this command? Did I do it? I'm driving a car. Should I close my eyes? Did I do this right? Am, am, am I pleasing God enough by my prayers? And, 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 then, and then here's what happens. One of two things occur. If you don't feel like you are, then you're plagued with guilt. And then if you do feel like you are, then you wonder, well, why isn't everybody else doing it like me? What's wrong with them? So on the one hand, you obsess over yourself. What's wrong with me? But on the other hand, you begin to obsess over others. What's wrong with them? But isn't the point of a daily quiet time about God? It's not about you. And it's not about others. You see? Here's another example. Last year we did a series called Radical. Okay? And it's about going deeper in a sacrificial way with our time and talents and treasure. And, and you know, as a result, many of you have become more generous. You've taken more spiritual risks. And you've let the Lord take you to places that you would never have gone on your own. But can you see how tempting it would be to turn your radical life into a badge of honor where you then judge someone else's spiritual life based on how radical you are? That's becoming an accidental Pharisee. Oh, and here's another. You know, our church is missional in the community and abroad. I mean, locally, we've done two weekends of service, uh, family resource day each year with salt and light. Uh, there's going to be an agape feast uh, today at Restoration Urban Ministries. And uh, at, uh, we, internationally, we support missionaries abroad uh, and stateside. We, we do missions trips. We're Operation Christmas Child is coming, you know. And, and the evil one would love us to view these wonderful ministry initiatives with Pharisaic pride. Look what we're doing for God. God, you're welcome. I'll mention one more. Spiritual gift projection. Spiritual gift projection. You know what that is? Gift projection is the toxic belief that my calling is everybody else's calling. Right? It, 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 it disfigures the body of Christ by insisting that the ears become eyes and hands become feet. And it looks like passion for mission, but really it's just candy-coated pride. And here's what it looks like. Let's say, to borrow the Apostle Paul's analogy of the body of Christ, let's say that you're an eye in the body of Christ. So spiritual gift projection occurs when you either wittingly or unwittingly devalue the other parts, like the ears, and you start viewing them as second-class body parts because, you know, ears can't see anything. And so you're an eye, so you start attending some special vision conferences where, where you gather with other eyes to celebrate the beauty of sight. You learn new ways to sharpen your vision. And you, then you 
watch guest eyes come up to a podium and bemoan the terrible blindness that ails the rest of the body. And then eventually you join a vision-focused church where you can study the latest in biblical optometry. And you congratulate yourself for your clarity of vision in a world gone blind. All the while, hardly noticing that you and your eye friends can, can't do anything else but see. You have no feet for walking, no mouth for talking, and no ears to hear anything but your own thoughts. The accidental Pharisee. Wow. We become accidental Pharisees when we give the application of a principle all the force of the principle itself. And, and so what we're learning about being a Pharisee and, and, and legalism is that it, it really has to do more about your attitude, your, your, your posture, your mindset. Interestingly enough, Jesus and the Pharisees actually agreed on some key doctrinal issues. <laughs> they both believed the sovereignty of God. They both believed free will and human responsibility. They both believed the existence of angels and demons. They both had a zeal for the word of God. They both believed in the resurrection at the last day. There was no argument there. The argument was about their attitude. Their attitude Legalism is an attitude of self-righteous arrogance that that causes a severe case of plantar Pharisee-itis. Huh? Last week I was complaining about my plantar fasciitis. It's much better this Sunday. Huh? Huh? I'll tell you what's worse than plantar fasciitis. It's plantar Phariseeitis. Plantar Phariseeitis causes sharp, stabbing pains in the heels of other believers or some other body parts. And it's not a picture we want uh, at home and in our hearts. Well, let's move on because after these two incidents became an incident that occurred on the Sabbath. About keeping the Sabbath. Now, the word Sabbath means to cease or to rest. And, and so this rhythm of working six days and resting one day. Did you know that no ancient society before the Jews celebrated a day of rest? The, the gift of, the, of God's people to the world was the gift of Sabbath. There, there wasn't anything like that beforehand. And God's people who had endured 400 years of working every day as slaves in Egypt, now they got to celebrate their freedom. One day in seven, they're free to worship and rest and play and learn and be creative and artistic and imitate God in their creativity. But the Pharisees made a straitjacket out of the Sabbath. They, the Pharisees tried to answer the question, okay, well, the Sabbath, we're not supposed to work. Okay, we better define work. What's work? Okay, uh-oh, I smell an application coming. And they gave the application of the principle all the force of the principle itself. And so they settled, I'm not making this up, on 39 Sabbath-keeping policies, which included things like, on the Sabbath, you couldn't sew more than one stitch. On the Sabbath, you couldn't walk more than 1,999 steps. 
uh, if a building fell down on the Sabbath, you could only rescue, you could only clear the debris if the person you were trying to rescue was alive. But if they were dead, you had to leave the corpse until after the Sabbath. I mean, silly, silly legalistic rules. And Jesus just pushes back here. He pushes back in verses 23 and following. You know, his, they're, they're on their way to the synagogue. The disciples are going through the grain fields. Obviously, the Pharisees are just kind of, you know, kind of hovering, helicoptering, looking to accuse them. And the disciples walk through someone else's field of grain and they start snacking and the Pharisees accuse them. Why are they, why, they're working on the Sabbath. Why are they doing blah, 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 blah. And by the way, what they were doing was not illegal at all. The book of Deuteronomy allowed this. But you know what? Jesus doesn't even go there. He does not even, he doesn't even argue with them. He, what he does is he cites King David's example in the Hebrew scripture. When King David, Israel's greatest king, was on a mission on behalf of God, he was the newly anointed king to bring in this new dynasty David's men needed food that was normally dedicated to the priests. And David, as God's newly anointed king, overruled this and ate. And Jesus' point was this. Someone greater than David has come. The Son of Man. And the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So I'd like a little butter with my bread, please. Pass it. Oh, this infuriated the Pharisees. So they're just, so they walk into church already upset, right? You ever had an argument on your way to church? You just argue with someone. We just drive separately. You know, they didn't. And they go into the synagogue in, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and they're just miffed. They're just furious. And Jesus knows this. And there's a worship service going on here. And one of the attenders comes. And happens to have a withered hand, a shriveled hand. And what you've got to understand is this, church family. The seating arrangement in the synagogue, I hope I'm not making you all uncomfortable, but um, deal with it. The seating arrangement, the seating arrangement was that was kind of arena style. So it would have been kind of literally in the round. And so Jesus would have been teaching like this. And so they walk in and there's a little group of the Pharisees. I need, to, I need to identify some Pharisees. Please don't take it personally. We'll just go over here, okay? All right. And so here they are. And, 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 and here's this man with this withered hand. You see that there? And verse 2 says, they, they did not come to worship God. They came looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely, and Jesus knew they were watching him. And he also knew that this man with his withered hand was there. And you know what Jesus does? Right in the middle of a sermon, he points to the man with the withered hand and says, You, come on up here. Just come right on up here. If he'd have known he was going to get called on by the preacher, he would have never come to church. <laughs> huh? Jesus stand up in front of everyone. He comes up, holds this guy, looks right at the Pharisees, and he asks them point blank. He says, now you tell me, here it is. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? And the Bible says they 
said nothing. They remained silent. They remained silent. And, and I want you to pay attention to Mark chapter 3, verse 5. This is the only time in the Bible where it explicitly says that Jesus became angry. See? Be angry. Sarah asked me yesterday, you mean he wasn't angry when he overturned the tables? Probably, but it doesn't say explicitly. This is the only time where it says, he looked around at them in anger. But then also notice, the next time you get angry, (laughs) it was anger and deep distress. Angry and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, literally at the hardness of their hearts. And that word is the, is the equivalent of the word that was used in the book of Exodus describing the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, you see. He was angry and disappointed and distressed. They said nothing. They weren't going to budge. They were not going to budge, and neither was Jesus. And so he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And when he did, it was whole. He could go back to Jerusalem now. He could participate in temple worship. He could have his job back. He could support his family. He could be a contributor to the community, you see, all because Jesus had healed him. And notice, Jesus didn't even touch him, did he? There was no touch. Jesus said, extend your hand. And he was automatically, so the work that Jesus provided was a word of healing. And if that's work on the Sabbath, then guilty. And then these dark verses, this this dark verse that concludes in Mark 3. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So you tell me who broke the Sabbath. You tell me who broke the Sabbath. Was it the one who did good? The one who saved life? Or was it the ones who on the Sabbath then left and had their own little committee meeting plotting to take someone's life? Wow. Ironically, the Pharisees of old, saw themselves as God's biggest fans. They praised him, they worshipped him, they spoke out in his defense, and yet when God showed up in church, they fiercely opposed him. Wow. And, And what I learned there is that, you know, becoming a Pharisee and legalistic Pharisee behavior caused me to do the very thing I promised I'd never do. Because it turns, legalism becomes an idol, a false god. I said I'd never worship, and then I do. And that's why legalism cannot coexist with Jesus. And that's why Jesus gave this little parable, these two parables in chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. You know, you can't sew a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. Because then when you wash the whole piece, then, then it'll pull away from the old, and then, then it'll make the tear worse. You can't put new wine into old wineskins. 
Because then when the new wine ferments, why, the old wineskins will burst and all will be lost. In, in the gospel message of Jesus Christ, his word is truth, his message, his grace will not fit into legalistic self-righteous structures. You can't pour the wine of grace into the wineskin of legalism. They're not compatible. You've got to get rid of the old wineskin from the new one and Jesus will give you a new one. So there we have it, two pictures. You tell me. One picture is grace-based, the other is shame-based. Which picture's on your wall? Which picture's on your wall? Well, let me ask you this question. Here's a good question to find out. How grateful are you? Because self-righteousness and gratitude cannot coexist. Legalism and, and thankfulness don't mix. Is my service to God out of love and gratitude and appreciation for all he's done for me? Or is it the guilt-ridden attempt to do more thinking God will love me more? And I'm telling you, these Pharisees will not let up. This is just chapter 3, verse 6, and they're beginning to plot to take his life. This is early. They're not going to let up. And you know what? Jesus is not going to let up either. The bridegroom has come and... He will, let his, he will let his life be taken away because only he lays down his life. And you know what? He lays down his life for them as well. That's how much he loves and that's the picture of God. See? So you've got to choose to passionately pursue the Pharisees or to passionately pursue Christ, church family. Choose Christ.